The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. David Vendrunen. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. I'm going to read from the end of 2 Corinthians I'm really, I'm only going to, I'm focusing on the last verse of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14, but I will begin reading in verse 11, just to uh, give you a few extra verses from God's word to contemplate. So 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 14. Hear God's word. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That ends our reading of God's word. Uh, When... I learned a short time ago that uh, the faculty was asked to speak again this semester from 2 Corinthians and was thinking what text, what text to speak on. And I thought about this benediction that came to mind. And uh, I use this benediction so often when I'm, when I'm preaching at the, at the end of uh, services. It's, uh, it's one of the most common benedictions that you'll hear, and it's one that I use probably more than uh, any other. And I thought to myself, well, I've pronounced this blessing so many times, maybe it'd be helpful to reflect on it for a little bit and uh, to share those reflections with you. So that's what I'm doing uh, this morning, uh, offering a few informal reflections on this wonderful benediction at the end of Second Corinthians. I have... I have a few basic reflections, and the first one is this. It is really a wonderful thing to close with a blessing. Now, there are many blessings throughout Scripture. Sometimes we bless God, right? You know, bless the Lord, O my soul. So sometimes the blessing comes from us to God. But ordinarily, the blessing comes from God to us. I mean, think about in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author there uh, says that uh, blessings are given from the greater to the lesser. That's, That's the ordinary way that blessings go. When we bless God, that's an appropriate form of worship. But it's even, it's better when God blesses us, because God is the greater. And uh, he, when he blesses us, it's, well, it's a blessing. And... It's interesting to think about uh, this. In the Old Testament, there are many different genres, right? We have historical books, we have books of wisdom, we have books of prophecy. But there aren't really any of those books that end with a blessing. It's not as if that's the regular way that these books end. But then we get to the New Testament, and we find so many of these New Testament books are epistles. And the ordinary way for epistles to end are with blessings, now, it's, not, it's not, a, not universally true. I mean, you know, probably you know, the, 
the, the epistle that may be the favorite of many of us, the book of Romans, does not end with a blessing. It ends with a doxology, which is an expression of giving glory to God. But uh, a great many, uh, most, I think the vast majority of epistles end with blessings. Now, what else ordinarily ends with blessings? Well, Reformed worship services ordinarily end with blessings. I'm sure there are some of you here who don't attend Reformed churches and may not regularly experience blessings at the end of the worship, your worship services on Sunday. I'm tempted to say, I'm sorry about that, uh, because you're missing something. Uh, you may think about our worship services, and sometimes we'll go through the worship service and Maybe the word of God that is read and preached that service is something that's very convicting. It might dig deep within us and makes us feel uncomfortable. And sometimes we go through a worship service and we feel very distracted or we're very anxious because of you know, the pressures and burdens of this life. But what a wonderful thing that no matter what's been going on in your heart and mind through a worship service, you always end, at least in a Reformed church, it always ends with a blessing. You go forth with the minister on behalf of the Lord, sending you forth with God's blessing. And you might think, I mean, is that something that you just go through? Or do you actually appreciate that? You know, when we hear the word read and preach, we all know we're supposed to be receiving that by faith. We're to be attentive to that and believe it and embrace it. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we all know we ought to be attentive and we ought to uh, have our hearts and minds focused and receive it by faith. And really, that's how we ought to receive the blessing at the end of the service as well. It's not just a little, you know, something you go through before you go out and get coffee. I mean, it's a wonderful blessing that God's... I, I, should, I should look for a different word. Uh, it's a wonderful gift that the Lord sends you forth from worship with a blessing. And embrace it. Believe it. Receive it by faith. It's not just at the end of a worship service that we receive a blessing. When we read so many of the New Testament epistles and when we read 2 Corinthians, we get to the end and God blesses you through the Apostle Paul. Read it and believe it and embrace that wonderful gift. That's my first point. It's a wonderful thing that Paul closes here with a blessing. And here's a second reflection it's not a curse. Now, maybe you think that's just sort of implied in the first point, and in a way it is, but it may be worth thinking about the fact that it's, it's a blessing and not actually a curse. Now, we know in Scripture that, and in ordinary life, I guess, the, uh, the opposite of a blessing is a curse, and Scripture not only contains a lot of blessings, but there are a lot of curses in Scripture. We think about about this, the relation of blessing and curse. It's a very big subject. But if you think back to the beginning of Scripture and the covenant of works, that covenant offers both blessing and curse, doesn't it? It threatens the curse and it offers the blessing. Although, which one is prominent? It's actually the curse that's prominent. It actually says explicitly, the day you eat of this, you will die. That's a threat of a curse. You actually, you only, you have to read between the lines to see the, the promise of the blessing implicit in the covenant of works. We turn to the Mosaic covenant. Well, there we get explicit blessings, expl explicit curses. And they often lay right side by side. 
Think about a remarkable chapter like Deuteronomy 28. You get a bunch of blessings, and then you get about three times longer curses. Right? There they are, right there before us. Of course, we are members of the new covenant. And I think the proper way for us to understand the relation of blessing and curse with respect to the new covenant is that the new covenant offers blessings but it really doesn't curse us at all or threaten curse at all. I would say that there are no proper curses in the New Covenant. You might think about how the New Testament begins. I was just mentioning this in a sermon this past Sunday as I was preaching from a text in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the, how does the Sermon on the Mount begin? It begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed, 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 blessed. And that's basically the first thing Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. Jesus opens his teaching in the New Testament as he proclaims the kingdom, as he begins unfolding the new covenant for us, and all he can do is bless us. What a great way to begin. Now, you might object to what I just said, or at least have some questions. I just said there are really no proper curses under the new covenant, only blessing. And you might think, well... It does seem that there are curses in the New Testament. So is it really true what I just said? Well, here's how I'd respond to that. There are certainly warnings in the New Testament. There are a lot of warnings in the New Testament. And there are also some times where we can read curses that are pronounced in the New Testament. It's certainly true that the New Testament instructs the church to do discipline when members of the church fall into sin and do not repent, what's, what's going on there? Well, I'd suggest this. Sometimes the church recognizes among its members that there are people who really are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As best we can tell, of course, we can't see the heart, but we do have to judge by, by outward by outward words and outward actions, sometimes we have to judge this person does not really belong in our midst because this person is living in a way that is contrary to Christian faith and life. And so we excommunicate a person from the new covenant community. And that person falls under a curse. But it's not the new covenant itself that curses. Sometimes the church has to say, we can't regard you as a member of the new covenant. And therefore, it means you're still under the covenant of works. And therefore, you fall under the curse of the covenant of works. You fall under the curse of the first Adam. And we grieve over that, but it's not the new covenant itself that is offering the curse. That may seem like a, maybe an overly fine distinction, but I think an important distinction theologically. Now, if we think about the Corinthian epistles, First and Second Corinthians, there's a lot here that's actually relevant to what I've just been saying. You might think of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, especially, where Paul contrasts the Old and New Covenants. Remember what he says about the Old Covenant? He says it's a ministry of death and of condemnation. He might have said it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a ministry of, of, uh, of, of curse. I mean, it's a similar way to speak. And he contrasts that with the new covenant, which is a ministry of righteousness. It's a ministry of, of life, a ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, it's a, it's a covenant of blessing. I think that supports what some of the things I've just been reflecting on. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, that in the Corinthian correspondence, there seems to be a lot of warning and a lot of at least curse in the background. I mean, the Corinthian churches does not seem to be one of the healthier churches that we read about in the New Testament. Right? In, in 1 Corinthians, boy, there are a lot of things that Paul has to has to rebuke and warn the, the, the church members about. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we find one of the most detailed New Testament explanations about discipline. He says, you may have to hand this person over to Satan who will not repent of the serious sin. Again, the new, it doesn't seem that the church itself is cursing the person, but handing a person over to Satan uh, for that, to lie under that curse unless he repents. And then it's interesting as we reach the end of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, the early part of 2 Corinthians 13, Paul, it's full of warning. Paul says, the third time I'm coming to you, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, that if I come again, I will not spare them. I mean, this is pretty serious material, and Paul goes on to say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So Paul is very concerned about the health of this church and he's exhorting them to cling to the faith and to Jesus Christ and to the life that is consistent with this faith. And yet, I want to point out that how does Paul end? Does he end with curse? No, he ends with blessing. Because you see, he's writing to, this, to, the, to the church not because for the purpose of putting them under a curse. He's ultimately writing these things to build them up. He's writing these things so that they might be stirred up and strengthened in their faith, and they might repent of their lingering sins, and that they not, may not only be recommitted to Christ, but they might heed the words of Christ's servant, the Apostle Paul, because that's an important part of what he's saying in 2 Corinthians. You can't say you belong to Christ and then despise the word of his chosen Apostle Paul. And so for all of the warning that we find in the Corinthian epistles, the Corinthian epistles end with a blessing rather than a curse. And that is a wonderful thing. And that brings me to my third and final reflection here for you this morning. And that is that this blessing is Trinitarian. I'll read it again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, there have been a number of things I've said that could apply to many of the New Testament epistles and the blessings that we find at the end of those letters. But I believe this, the, the blessing at the end of 2 Corinthians is the only explicitly Trinitarian blessing of, that closes any of the New Testament epistles. I'm looking, Dr. Johnson's nodding, so I feel better. I, I, I checked, but, you know, we're all fallible. Even Dr. Johnson, I guess, but less fallible than I am, I'm sure. Now, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, when you think about that? I, mean, I think we like the idea of explicitly Trinitarian blessing. You do find a Trinitarian blessing at the beginning of Revelation, so it's not as if this is the only Trinitarian blessing in the New Testament, but this is the only epistle that ends with one. Some of the blessings are only, you know, to say, grace be with you. 
Many of them mention one person of the Trinity, usually Christ. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or something like that. Now, important to remember, of course, that it's not as if those other blessings are anti-Trinitarian or non-Trinitarian. They are implicitly Trinitarian, sort of in the way that, you know, when you read in the book of Acts that you know, Paul baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not saying he didn't baptize in the name of the other persons of the Trinity, it's still a baptism, you know, in Matthew 28, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but sort of a shorthand, baptism in the name of Christ. And I take it that these other blessings are implicitly Trinitarian. If you're blessed in the name of Christ, you're also blessed in the name of the Father and the Spirit as well. But it's still wonderful, isn't it, that we have at least one blessing that is explicitly Trinitarian. Why does Paul give an explicitly Trinitarian blessing here at the end of 2 Corinthians, and yet we don't find that at the end of any of the other epistles. Well, you thought I was going to give you an answer, but the answer is, I don't know why. Maybe Dr. Johnson knows the answer, but you can ask him later. I don't know why. It's interesting that at the opening of 2 Corinthians, he gives a blessing that mentions Father and Son, and not the Spirit. But here at the end, it's as if he comes to crescendo and he mentions Father, Son, and Spirit. And here's the only comment that I have on this. The Spirit plays a pretty remarkable role earlier in 2 Corinthians. And so it does seem so fitting that he mentions the Spirit explicitly here at the end. In 2 Corinthians 3, particularly, he highlights the work of the Spirit as the one who is decisive in making the new covenant a covenant of life and blessing and righteousness in distinction from the old covenant, which was a ministry of death and condemnation. In part, it wasn't all the old covenant was, but it was in part that. Not again that the Spirit was absent in the old covenant, but the Spirit has become wonderfully, powerfully present to bless God's people under the new covenant. And Paul has brought that out in such powerful ways in 2 Corinthians 3 that it seems so fitting for him to mention this fellowship of the Holy Spirit as he blesses us here at the end of this epistle. And so I leave you not only with the thought that it is truly a great gift that Paul ends with a, with a blessing, that God blesses you at the end of this epistle, and that he does not curse you, but also that you remember that this, this blessing is a fully Trinitarian blessing. You are blessed because the Father has chosen you from the foundation of the world. You are blessed because the Son has won your blessing through his perfect work in his life, death, and resurrection. And you are blessed because the Spirit applies that blessing to you. The Spirit is conforming you into the image of the Son of God from glory unto glory, as Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians 3. And it's because he is doing that that you may be assured even this day that you are blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessing. Lord, when we think of how many times you have pronounced a curse in the scriptures. 
and how the curse of the covenant of works hangs over this entire world, fallen in the first Adam, and how nothing but curse awaits those who remain in the first Adam and refuse to turn to Christ. Lord, we thank you, and we praise you, and we bless you that you have included us in your Son, and that in him, and through the application of his work by your powerful spirit that we stand blessed before you. And so we pray, O Lord, that even when we feel convicted of our sin, even when we feel burdened by the anxieties of this life, even when we feel the power of the temptations of Satan or the evil of other human beings who hate the gospel, we pray, O Lord, that you would comfort us with the knowledge that we stand blessed in Christ and blessed in his spirit and that no one or no thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.